0: So, please take your Bibles and let's read together some verses in the Psalm 18. In the Psalm 18 today. The 18th Psalm. Again, a couple of weeks ago, we were last sort of meeting this fashion. We were seeking to understand something of the nature of what's termed God's aseity, that his being comes from himself. He is. Again, uncaused, uncreated, self-sufficient, the eternal God. Again, without beginning and without cause, not made of any. But again, that eternal self-existent God. And there are some very important aspects of that doctrine that really are continuations from those concepts. We need the Lord's help. Again, I want to read some verse here from Psalm 18. And we're going to read from the verse number 22. For all his judgments were before me, and I did not put away his statutes from me. I was also upright before him, and I kept myself from mine iniquity. Therefore hath the Lord recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his eyesight. With the merciful, thou wilt show thyself merciful. With an upright man, thou wilt show thyself upright. With the pure, thou wilt show thyself pure. and With the froward, thou wilt show thyself froward. For thou wilt save the afflicted people, but will bring down high looks. For thou wilt light my candle, the Lord my God will enlighten my darkness. For by thee I have run through a troop, and by my God have I leaped over a wall. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried, he is a buckler to all those that trust in him. For who is God? Save the Lord. And who is a rock save or God? It is God that girdeth me with strength and maketh my way perfect. Amen. We look to God again to bless His Word uh, to our hearts today. In this consideration of we, call, the, the, the aseity of God, we're looking at this really as something that presumes something. And the idea here is it presupposes something. And presumes God's perfection. That God is a perfect being. Now we again have a somewhat limited thought of the word perfection. And even in our Bibles the word perfection has various senses and meanings. You take the word there in verse number 32 regarding David's ways. It is again a comparative perfection. Not absolute perfection. It describes completion oftentimes. It describes the end of something. But yet when you go back to verse number 30, you'll see that there is something of God. His way is perfect. And again, God's way is perfect because God himself is perfect. And again, I've wrestled how to to take what really is often a theological concept, and again, men have their own various definitions, and try to simplify that into our own language. And one way to think of God's perfection is to describe it as God being flawless. Flawless. God has no defect. Put it that way. There's nothing deficient in the being of God. He has no deficiencies, no inadequacies. God is not in any way needy. And so we understand our lack of completion and perfection some way and in the sense that we, we continue to live in, in, in an experience of need. We need the resource that God gives us. We need the grace that God gives us. We need the support and companionship that God gives in the church. We, we, we live in continual need. That is not true of God. God is absolutely flawless. Another term that is often used in the Scriptures describes, if you like, God's fullness the sense of the infinite fullness of God. Again, this, uh, the same idea of being no deficiency, no defect, no need. God is full and flawless. It's true, if you like, in an essential way. Now, I'm not referring to essential here as something that's needy, but rather God's essence. He is perfect in essence, in His being. Eternally perfect and flawless, He's also perfect in a a moral sense. And this is maybe the way way we think of this in in terms of God's perfection as in having no moral flaw, no moral defect. And the Bible uses it that way. We'll we'll see Matthew chapter 5. Be ye therefore perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's, of course, referring to morality, not to God's essential attribute of perfection. So we're thinking of this idea of God being perfect in His I'm going to give you a couple of quotes here from, again, some uh, well-respected Reformed theologians. First of all, Herman Bavinck says this, When God ascribes this aseity, this being to himself in Scripture, he makes himself known as absolute being, as the one who is in an absolute sense. By this perfection, he is at once essentially and absolutely distinct from all creatures. Put it this way, God is... Eternally without any need and eternally unchanged. Uh, And those again are are sort of corresponding concepts regarding God's perfection. Sharnock, Stephen Sharnock, the English Puritan, says this God is of himself and from no other. That's what he said about his his ascetics. His being comes from himself. God hath no original. In other words, there is no, nothing before God to cause God. He hath no increase because he hath no beginning. He was before all things and therefore depends upon no other thing. He is eternally self-sufficient and a perfect being in that regard. Now, that is a consequential conclusion from, again, the concept that God needs nothing and depends upon nothing. He is perfect in of himself. So turn across to to, to Romans chapter 11, please. I want to just prove this in in Scripture. These these are not theoretical concepts. And by the way, folks, you're living in a day when this language is being contested in the Christian church. And there are those who are proposing some sort of progression in God, development in God, that God's foreknowledge is, is limited, that the future is not closed The future is open to to man's free will, and man and God together will work in some, if you like, an open theistic way and come to some future conclusion. These things are not settled in the Christian church today, and they must be reaffirmed. And you say, well, I'm not sure how this applies to me. Well, I'll show you the application, no trouble. But I need to get the the clarity of the concepts first and foremost. But Romans chapter 11, in the verse number 35, it says this, who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again. So there's no sense in which God is indebted to anybody. You have you've given nothing to God that he has to pay you back. Everything you have is of God's free kindness and his grace. You you never get yourself to a point that God owes you anything. Now, I understand what it says in Hebrews 6. God's not forgetful. He doesn't forget our labors of love. And in His grace, He will indeed, again, be pleased to reward and bless. But it's not repayment. God owes us nothing. We've given nothing to God that He would then have to pay us back. And here's the, if you like, the theological foundation for that concept. Verse 36, for of Him and through Him and to Him are all things. And I'm focused again on the for of Him. There's nothing before God. Nothing precedes God in such a way that God then owes that other thing for his being. See how different that is for us? We come from God. We owe God everything. We render to Caesar the things that are Caesars, and to God the things that are God. Our very existence is from God, and therefore we owe God our very existence. But that's not true for God. He is entirely, eternally self-sufficient and perfect without any flaws or defect. Of course, God reveals himself. Turn back to Job chapter 41. This is how God even reveals himself to to Job. You know, there's a long-going discussion. One of the discussions i got... I'm not sure we'll turn to today. We may, may get time for this, but one of the discussions between Job and his friends is this idea that, you know, Job, you give nothing to God. He, he owes you nothing. And there's some truth in that concept, even from those friends who were less than compassionate towards him. But look at Job 11, verse number 11, Job 41, sorry, Job 41, verse 11. Who hath prevented me that I should repay him? In the same language, Paul actually is really more than likely taking the concept of Job 41 in Romans 11. Now, we understand the word prevented here is the old English word taken from the Latin to come before. Pre, before, vente to come. So come before. Nothing has come before God. Nothing precedes God. We might use it in our modern English. Nothing prevents, comes before or precedes God that I should repay Him. And so the sense is if God is eternally self-existent, then he's eternally without any needs. Doesn't need to repay anybody, doesn't depend upon anybody or anything. He is eternally sufficient in and of himself. Perfect, flawless being without deficiency or any inadequacy at all. Again, note how the Lord continues Whatsoever is under the whole heaven is mine. Again, we understand this concept of God as the creator, but. Assumed in that language is therefore the perfection of God. Again, Dosal, the more modern theologian, says this the reason God can receive nothing from us is because we have nothing to give him that he does not already possess. When God gives to his creatures, he does not give away. I've said this before, and I want you to remind you this again. When God gives us anything, he does not deplete his resources. He continues, he does not divest himself of being in actuality when he gives good gifts to humans. Consequently, we have nothing to bestow on God that he does not already perfectly and infinitely possess in his fullness of being. As we cannot subtract from his infinite beatitude, neither can we replenish or enlarge it. We we can't make God more blessed than he is. We we can't increase God's self-satisfaction. He is already perfect in glory. And again, that's something we've got to understand. When you come to think about man's chief end is to glorify God, that is not suggesting for one second that we are adding to God's glory. Again, some people have this idea. God creates man. God saves man. And in so doing, that displays God's glory. But it does not make God more glorious than He is. It simply displays that which is already true of God. And so so God eternally is what He is, but that is displayed in creation, it's displayed in providence, and it's displayed in redemption. And so we we glorify God by displaying Him, displaying His nature, His attributes, His works, again, with, with our language, in our words, in our worship, but also in our lives. We display the glory of God, but we do not increase the glory of God. Think of it this way. God's love is not increased when you come to faith in Christ. It doesn't increase God's love in any way. It's not now that God's another creature to love in Christ Jesus. He is perfect, infinite love that is not added to by our coming to know Him. Nor, by the way, is his perfect hatred for sin increased by the increasing iniquity in society. God has a perfect eternal hatred towards sin in his being. There's no increase in God, and again, you may have never thought these in these terms, but there are those who are writing and preaching this sort of stuff, that God is enhanced in some way by his creation, enhanced by his work of redemption. Again, Dozel continues, All these things, being glorious, loving, opposed to sin, God simply is in and of himself. The delight he manifests in repentant sinners and the wrath he reveals against the ungodly are nothing but his own fullness of perfect being, variously disclosed with reference to particular creatures at different times. You turn back to Psalm 18 again, which again is highlighting the perfection of God's being, and you'll see this idea. It's not that God is changing, it is God that displays his perfect being to creatures in different times and in various ways. Verse number 25, with the merciful thou wilt show thyself merciful, with the upright man thou wilt show thyself upright. These are attributes of God, God is merciful, God is just. With the pure, thou won't show thyself pure. And then this, with the froward, with the stubborn, with the rebellious, thou won't show thyself froward. In other words, God treats people according to their nature, but not in a changing sense that one minute God's like this, and another minute's like this, but rather he is consistently pure and perfect in his being, and that displays, and he therefore displays his attributes in a manner consistent with who he is. Let me read this to you. Man is not the agent by which these actualities are produced in God. So it's not because we're just that therefore God becomes just. But rather, he he treats unjust as those who are just. Human actions are simply the occasions for the unfolding of God's display of his unchanging virtues. He is perfect. Think of this in terms of creation. Again, I'm trying to draw this line from creation to, again, the perfection of God. Adam was created by God. But Adam did not move without the action of God. There was a prior action to cause Adam to move. But God, however, is eternal He is the eternal first cause and required no other external cause to give life or movement. Therefore, in himself, there is no flaw. Adam was made good. Nothing, if you like, flawed in his creation. But he had needs. He was inadequate in himself until God breathed in him the breath of life. And then he he becomes a living, moving, functioning human being. That did not happen for God. God is perfect Flawless without any needs, and therefore we can say He is therefore inexhaustible. And that's, that's the application of this. When you understand the nature of God's perfection, and that is eternal perfection, uncaused perfection, then God is inexhaustible in His being. He's unchanging in that sense. Again, that reads something from sharnock sharnock says this, "He who hath not being from another cannot but be always what he is. God is the first being, an independent being. He was not produced of himself or of any other, but by nature always hath been, and therefore cannot by himself or by any other be changed from what he is in his own nature. He is essentially perfect. Now, all I'm doing, I'm not explaining this. I'm stating it. The explanation of this, again, is very, very challenging. What does this actually mean? I'm trying to use human language to explain the infinite perfection of God. But He is without flaw, without need, in no way inadequate or in no way deficient. Of course, it does lead, and we'll come next Lord's Day, to think about God's immutability, His unchangeable nature. Because if God were to change, He would change either for the better or for the worse. And if there's change in God, but well, that's going to imply some deficiency in God if he must change and improve. So again, creation does not improve upon God. Therefore, he's less than perfect. Again, that's internally inconsistent. And the other thought is if God changes for the worst, then he ceases to be perfect. If there's any change in God, that spoils his eternal perfection and ultimately his true deity. And so an application of this, and you'll see as, as David in the Psalm here, Psalm 18. As he reflects upon the perfection of God, you come to understand that that is the foundation for God's inexhaustible ability to provide and to minister for David. You see how he applies it. His way is perfect, verse number 30. But in the context, he is affirming again what God is able to do. Thou wilt do this, thou wilt do that. You have done this, you have done that. All the various languages used uh, regarding the experience of God. And it is God, verse 32, it is God that girdeth me with strength. You know, we we get great help, don't we, from human companionship. Uh, Emotional strength. Spiritual strength. Even in the church, we are to... Uh, you know, encourage and exhort one of love and do good works. But there's a time coming that the young people in this church will be here without many of us. By God's grace. By God's grace they'll be here, uh, worshipping God, but we won't be. There's a finite aspect of the strength and encouragement received from human encouragement. But not so with God. God is not exhausted. And so when you think to yourself, I wonder, God has helped me for 40 years. Will he help me for another 40? You have no need to doubt for one second the ability of God to continue to strengthen and sustain you all of your days. He is inexhaustible as a perfect, flawless being. He is entirely self-sufficient and therefore is able to minister to you all of your days. And you know what? Not just for your days on this earth, but for all of your days forever and forever and forever. If God is not eternally perfect and self-sufficient, you have no confidence of eternity. The concept of eternal blessedness with God rests upon God's Eternal, self-sufficient, perfect being. So obviously, these are practical things. You know, you may not immediately go in that direction when you're discouraged on the Monday morning, but perhaps you'll do that tomorrow. God will not, and cannot, and is not able to fail you. He's a perfect God in terms of his being, essentially perfect, but also perfect in terms of his morality. Again, this is the era where we're definitely much more familiar with this concept. And again, from this you get the idea of God's holiness. So God's holiness, if you like, is His perfection displayed in life creation. He's essentially holy, but we see that displayed then in terms of His creation. I'm going back a step here. God is essentially pure. Without creation, He is pure, morally pure. No defect in God's purity even prior to creation. And so you go to Matthew chapter 5. This is We've mentioned this text already, Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to show you four, four proof texts, again, to the moral purity of God. And Again, one of the things that you see in this is the impurity of our own being. I should mention there's a term that's used for this. It is the impeccability of God. Oftentimes, theologically, it's used regarding Christ. Christ is impeccable. Uh, the idea was that not only did Christ do no sin, but Christ could do no sin. Impeccability goes a step further than God, than Christ's sinlessness. Sinlessness could look back and describe how he lived. Impeccability describes who he is. He was not able to sin as the second person of the Godhead because God himself is impeccable without ability to sin. And so Matthew chapter 5, again, I'm simply turning you here to note That this word perfect is this point referring uh, to uh, a moral perfection. Matthew 5, 48. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Again, showing us the standard. Again, the whole point, the whole context of, of Matthew 5 is a right understanding of the law of God. And so God's moral perfection is revealed in His law toward us. And therefore, the standard of obedience is God Himself. But I'm simply pointing out that this perfection is not referring to, uh, if you like, an essential description of His being without flaw. It's describing His morality. Uh, the implication being that we, therefore, should aim and strive towards such. Now, we will not achieve it. We need a Savior. We need a Redeemer. We need Christ's perfect righteousness. But that does not diminish the standard. The standard is God's perfection. Again, it's worth remembering and telling people around you that because God is perfect, His law is perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect. Psalm 19. Because out of God's perfect character and perfect morality comes a perfectly good law. It's one of the clear reasons, by the way, folks. That the idea of there being no obligation to Sabbath keep in the New Covenant is abject nonsense. The perfection of God's moral law revealed in the Ten Commandments does not change. It's a manifestation of God's perfect character, and therefore there is an obligation to Sabbath in the New Covenant as well as there is in the Old. Just a passing comment, but God's law is perfect, it's good. Then turn back then to Job 15 again because there's really very striking language used in Job regarding the purity of God. And I think in some way this language is used in an exaggerated fashion to draw our attention again to God's perfection. It's it's almost hyperbolic language. Job 15, 15. Behold, he putteth no trust in his saints, Yea, the heavens are not clean in his sight. Again, there's different thoughts regarding the the description here of of heaven. What heavens? Is it the atmosphere in which you live? But again, it seems to be in the context of Job, he's, he's referring to God even being above his created order in the heavens. Even the angelic host are not so pure as God. Even the unfallen angels are not so pure as God. Because in the very nature of the angels was the potential for the fall. Is this the point I'm making right now? God himself is distinct from the angels. Because God is not capable of any moral flaw. He's impeccable. Not only does he do no wrong, he cannot do any wrong. You see, the angels are referred to. Look back to chapter 4 of Job. Job chapter 4 in the verse number 17. Shall mortal man be more just than God? Shall a man be more pure than his maker? Again, obviously no. But then it continues. Behold, he put no trust in his servants, and his angels he charged with folly. It's almost like the language of Corinthians. That the wisdom of man, oh, it's foolishness compared even to the folly of God. The, the God is so much greater, so much superior to all of His creation. The absolute purity of God. And so, again, back in, in Job 15, it simply says the heavens are not clean in His sight. But then turn across to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, again, another text describing the impeccability of God. James chapter 1, and we we looked at this in our studies in James and we saw this this text. I will stay here. I should also mention Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13, is another text I mentioned. We'll stay in James for now. And again, Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13 God is of pure eyes and behold iniquity. And the sense there, again, is not that God cannot see sin. Clearly, He sees sin. But the idea is, there's nothing in the being of God that can possibly look with any favor towards sin. But with us, we see sin. And sometimes our response towards that sin is to see some good in that sin. God, there's nothing in the character of God that can begin to see any, even the smallest iota of good in sin itself. His being is of such pristine moral purity and perfection. But James chapter 1, verse 13, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. And here's the text, For God cannot be tempted with evil. That's impeccability. Again, James is implying it this way, Neither tempteth he any man. In other words, God is not the author of the temptation towards sin. God himself cannot be tempted with evil. His eyes are too pure to behold iniquity. Of course, this is a description of the impeccability of God. God is not like us. Of what man can it be said he cannot be tempted with evil? Can you say that yourself today? Can you say that to anybody you've known all your life? Someone who is of such moral purity, even in such spiritual maturity and experience things of God that they could not be tempted with evil? Of course not. But the Bible says God cannot be tempted with evil. And of course, that is then the doctrine that leads to the impeccability of Christ Jesus, that he is not tempted with evil. That Satan has. There's nothing in Christ that Satan can get hold of. He's of such pristine purity as our blessed Redeemer. And as he faces temptation, he does so as a pure man, as a man incapable of succumbing to temptation, the certainty of him being our perfect righteousness and our redeemer, without flaw or defect. So I've gone through that deliberately without any, any questions or comments. I just wanted to keep running through the material there. We're looking again at the essential being of God, his moral and essential perfection, no flaw, no defect, no inadequacy, no need. And from that, we worship and glorify God. And I will take time for questions and, and any comments. Yeah, Dan. No, and the the comment's important, Dan, because we are looking here at the, if you like, a theological foundation for God's sovereignty and God's eternal goodwill and all of these things uh, come out of this because we're going to come to God's unchangeability. He's immutable. His will is immutable. You know, He's he's a perfect God. He never does or wills anything wrong. Perfection in His being. uh, Again, some of the, the, the thinking, again, there are those in the theological world who have tried to, they've tried to put together man's free will with this understanding that man seems to make consequential decisions, that we, we do, we, we, we make free choices. Nobody denies that. You know, that you, you decide you decide this morning to come to church or not. You know, you're, you're not constrained in that. You do what you want to do. And so people say, well, therefore, then the future is contingent upon man's choices. And therefore, God's knowledge of the future is limited until men make the choice. And so this becomes, again, you get this, this kind of open, progressive theism, where you get the idea that God is, is going to adapt given the future changes. Now, I, that, to man's mind, makes logical sense to some. If men make choices, then God has left man open to make those choices. But it denies the essential character and being of God and so trying to understand these things in our finite grasp, we end up bringing some very, very bad theology. And so the Bible presents, always presents, again, the responsibility of man to make choices, and yet all under the oversight of the sovereignty of God who does all things according to the counsel of his will. And so these, these are challenging things to understand, but asserting certain this is very important. George. Can, can, can you keep that in your mind for two weeks? If you don't mind, okay? Because the question for those watching on was, what about the incarnation? In what sense, if God is unchanging, does the incarnation not deny God's immutability? I have that plan for December 24th, brother, in Bible class, okay? So if you can bear with me for two weeks, I'll answer that question in more detail. but Go ahead. Sure. Yeah. No, we'll definitely we'll, we'll we'll come to look at the incarnation. I think it's an important one. I'm not I'm not manufacturing this. This is my deliberate. I wasn't trying to squeeze it into the time That's not the point. But it does happen to fall on December 24th, and the incarnation and immutability is an interesting feature of God's immutability. So we'll look at that December 24th, Lord willing. The cross aspect of that, God is not changing in the cross. God is eternally, unchangeably angry towards sin. And so as Christ is sin upon the cross, there's no change in God. God is acting unchangeably in that aspect. And will do eternally for those outside of Christ. But there's Ken, I don't know if anybody else, maybe. Dan, Ken, go ahead. Yeah, it's, it's a qualified impeccability. So, again, for those watching on Ken's, ask the question. Fallen man's mutable, changeable, capable of sin. Redeemed man is capable of sin. But eternally, you know, in terms of our final state, we are not capable of sin. We are not fallible. I think use a very, very bad word, but you get the, the sense of that of that idea. And so, are we impeccable in that sense? I think the text is First John 3. We shall see him be like him. And so, in some sense, we are morally impeccable. Now, not as God is, because we've gone through the changes of uh, fall and redemption and all of those things. But, but God, in the wonder of the final redemptive state, His final work in us is to make us like Christ in terms of moral impeccability. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, anyway, Dan. Dan. Yeah, amen. No, amen. There's no no change Jehovah knows in in terms of our redemption. He's planned redemption from the beginning. And actually, um, yeah, this morning's message, we're going to see some of this. I won't be dealing with theology this morning, but if you're looking for it, I encourage you to look for it in the sermon. We're going to see that God brings warnings of judgment, and the sinner should not see a warning of judgment in the assumption that they cannot change and come under God's mercy. So if you teach this carelessly, you get the idea, well, I'm a child of wrath, that God doesn't change, therefore I'm always a child of wrath. No, you think of the Ninevites, 40 days, and Nineveh should be destroyed, but they repent, and God relents of the punishment uh, warned against Nineveh. So, so don't, don't get such a wooden view of this that you, you don't see, and offer the sinner the hope that if they change, again, they come under God's grace, and that's true. But the other sense we'll see today is that, that part of God's dealings is to fulfill his eternal purpose of redemption that's not changeable and can't be thrus- frustrated or thwarted. You know, God can't be hindered in, in doing his perfect will. So, yeah, these, these are big, they're huge topics, folks. We're, I'm just touching the, the surface and hopefully we get some developing understanding of our knowledge of God uh, going forward. And may God help us to understand his perfect being more and more day by day. Ultimately, that we worship him. And that we glorify him and praise him as God because we are so unlike God. That's what you come down to every week. You come back to that conclusion. God is God and we are not God. And therefore we give him all the praise and all of the glory. Now right, let's pray. Let's close in prayer. And again, may the Lord help us today. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the revelation you've given of yourself and the word. That nothing comes before thee, nothing prevents or precedes thee. Thou art the eternal God, uncaused and unchanging. Help us, Lord, to worship and glorify thee as such so we would not, again, have a, man, a man-focused view of our God, but rather we would see you as revealed in the Word of God. May we glorify thee as God. Exalt and praise your great and holy name. Help us, Lord, even to grasp some of these things. While things are, again, beyond our full comprehension, may, may we understand a little more today and then a little more tomorrow and continue to grow in the knowledge of our God. Bless us, help us to mature as we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.